Hello again, and welcome to Eddie Hurst's podcast version of The War of the Worlds. Here we are on Chapter 7, How I Got Home. No, not how I got home, but how the narrator got home. Let me explain the show. Each episode, we take a chapter of H.G. Wells' seminal novel, The War of the Worlds, we stick it in a blender, we add in a bunch of deep dives for extra research around, we get a comedy song, we even have some of my personal comedy friends that come on and do some excellent voice acting work and just a general fun bit of chit-chatter, chit-chatter, What's happened before? We've had a Martian attack with the heat ray. He's on his way back, the narrator, to get home and suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. Not that that was a thing in Victorian times as we will see. So before we get started, which we're just going to jump in because I've not got loads that I need to say ahead of time, uh, thanks very much for listening. Please subscribe, rate the podcast and give us a review. You know, the reviews are coming in now, which is very nice. Also this week I'm joined by the fantastic Bexy Archer who will be playing the role of The Wife. So uh, be sure to brace yourself for that. Let's get started. Here we are on chapter 7, How I Got Home. For my own part, I remember nothing of my flight except the stress of blundering against trees and stumbling through the heather. All about me gathered the invisible terrors of the Martians. That pitiless sword of heat seemed whirling to and fro, flourishing overhead before it descended and smote me out of life. Sword of heat. Uh, hot sword. Hot sword. Sounds, sounds, a, sounds a bit like a, like a dick, right? I came into the road between the crossroads and Horsel, and ran along this to the crossroads. At last I could go no further. I was exhausted with the violence of my emotion and of my flight, and I staggered and fell by the wayside. That was near the bridge that crosses the canal by the gasworks. I fell and lay still. I must have remained there some time. I sat up, strangely perplexed. For a moment, perhaps, I could not clearly understand how I came there. My terror had fallen from me like a garment, my hat had gone, and my collar had burst away from its fastener. As we all know, uh, if you've not got a hat and you've not got a collar in this story, you are a maniac. You'll be on the next train to Bedlam, buddy. A few minutes before, there had only been three real things before me. The immensity of the night and space and nature my own feebleness and anguish, and the near approach of death. Now it was as if something had turned over, and the point of view altered abruptly. There was no sensible transition from one state of mind to the other. I was immediately the self of every day again, a decent, ordinary citizen. The silent common, the impulse of my flight, the starting flames, were as if they had been in a dream. I asked myself had these latter things indeed happened? I could not credit it. I mean, imagine now if Wells did decide, nah, it's all a dream. <laughs> and then it just goes on with him writing some sort of philosophical essay or or he, he genuinely does learn to ride the bike. Part of me kind of wants that. I rose and walked unsteadily up the steep incline of the bridge. My mind was blank wonder. My muscles and nerves seemed drained of their strength. I dare say I staggered drunkenly. A head rose over the arch and the figure of a workman carrying a basket appeared. Beside him ran a little boy. He passed me, wishing me a good night. Good night, my lord! I was minded to speak to him, 
but did not. Bit rude. I answered his greeting with a meaningless mumble and went on over the bridge, over the Maybury Archer train, a billowing tumult of white, firelit smoke, and a long caterpillar of lighted windows went flying south, clatter, clatter, clap, rap, and it had gone. Okay, all right. Welcome to the uh, welcome to the to the open mic poetry slam we got tonight at the uh, the Hazy Horsel. We got a potluck now. Uh, we're, we're just gonna leave the microphone open to whoever wants to join us. Thank you, thank you. Clatter, clatter, clap, rap. Clatter, clatter, clap, rap. A billowing tumult of white, fire lit smoke, and a long caterpillar of lighted windows went flying south. Clatter, clatter, clap, rap. And it had gone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. A dim group of people talked in the gate of one of the houses in the pretty little row of gables that was called Oriental Terrace. It was all so real and so familiar. And that behind me, it was frantic, fantastic. Such things, I told myself, could not be. Perhaps I am a man of exceptional moods. Listen, honey, my moods are exceptional. I do not know how far my experience is common. At times I suffer from the strangest sense of detachment from myself and the world about me. I seem to watch it all from the outside. From somewhere inconceivably remote. Out of time. Out of space. Out of the stress and tragedy of it all. Okay, uh, so please welcome to the stage the next poet. At times I suffer from the strangest sense of distraction from myself and the world about me. I seem to watch it all from the outside, from somewhere inconceivably remote, out of time, out of space, out of the stress and tragedy of it all. Thank you. Please follow my Instagram. This feeling was very strong upon me that night. Here was another side to my dream. Well, that mood may sound exceptional to him, but dissociation from physical self and an emotional numbness, feeling out of body, kind of reads like the exact symptoms you'd expect from post-traumatic stress disorder. In fact, I've got a list with those exact things right here. He's scoring at least 60% out of 100 of the possible symptoms, and, you know, that's like a B at GCSE. Or is that a 5 in the new ratings, or 6? And to be fair, his response is pretty unsurprising. After all, the narrator did just experience a weapon unlike anything seen before. Uh, excuse me? Yeah, alright, Archimedes. Shut up about your mirrors for once. A weapon almost unlike anything seen before, being used to create wanton destruction and the loss of some of his close personal friends. So I think you could forgive him for having at least a minor breakdown. I mean, I've had at least two breakdowns over this past week and I've experienced approximately zero Martian attacks. So why is this guy so shocked about his feelings? Surely it's not strange for him to respond in this way that we'd expect all people to? To experience significant altered states of emotion following trauma. But actually, this is pretty new territory for him and everyone at the time Wells was right. I thought I'd have a look into post-traumatic stress disorder in Victorian times because I'm a really fun guy with a lot on. And I came up with near diddly squat. Oh sure, you can see a whole mess of people entering into mania. Yeah. 
Christian are likely to be Beatles, or Hysteria, like with that song by Muse, but considering that this was an age where from childhood you could be forced day in day out under machines that could rip your scalp off, or be pushed up chimneys, or down mines, uh, and, and these were the things that would be helpful to support yourself and your family, you'd think there'd be more reports of people just absolutely losing it due to stress. So, so what gives? Well, I mean, probably fairly depressingly, uh, they were working class people who'd be working in those places, and who'd be interested in studying the mental well-being of a population largely there to make the fat cat industrialists both fatter and cattier. This cat's got the cream and the means of production. At the time of publication, anyone who'd become unable to function in society from mental duress would most likely be sent to a pauper asylum. Set up in 1830, these were a requirement of every county in the country to provide facilities to offer treatment and, in theory, recovery to those without a rich family to send you away. I went into a massive rabbit hole with mental health treatment in the past, largely uh, because as somebody who receives mental health treatment in the present, it's always a harrowing jaunt into history, but also because it's as fascinating as it is upsetting and nuance. Rest assured guys, in a book that's about the whole destruction of civilization as they know it, we'll have plenty of opportunities to go deeper into this later on. For now though, let's specifically look at trauma in the time of Martians. The main reason it turns out that the narrator might not understand what they're experiencing as a medical phenomenon is because the idea of trauma doesn't exist at this time. You know, this idea of the mind responding emotionally to external pressures isn't something that comes about until the work of Sigmund Freud, everyone's favourite cocaine-fueled psychologist. And largely, it's a result of soldiers returning from the Great War with shell shock. As you would. I mean, I, I definitely would. I mean, you know, I played Call of Duty 2 once and I, I woke up in the middle of the night thinking I was in a trench, so God knows what it'd be like if I was actually in a trench. Just let that settle in, though. The idea of lasting upset after a catastrophic event, as far as they were concerned, didn't exist. Instead, it was a mild hysteria and the doctor saying something like, You were sick, but now you're well, and there's work to do, so get back on that steam-powered death machine and make me some money, baby. Uh, to quote Malka T. Notman in Traumatic Pasts, Individual vulnerability was seen in moral terms. This basically means that if you were under mental anguish, it must be due to some torture of the soul rather than the brain. You know, because it's your fault, you're I suffering for your sins. The idea would be that the mind would go on to affect the nervous system, rather than a physical shock going the other way round and affecting the mind. And you can totally see this in Victorian fiction. Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte is a particular banger for this, because characters are always running out in the rain on the heights, catching their deaths from decisions they made that are largely due to heart-rendering guilt. You know, instead of, say, the fact they're all existing in a household built on abuse and emotional repression. Wuthering Heights is also a particular banger thanks to Kate Bush, but that's not as useful right now. Give it a rest, Kate! So with the idea that trauma was largely caused by sin, was there any sort of explanation for people's response to major disasters? Well, the majority of major disasters were largely experienced by the poor. Even the worst excesses of war in these times was largely reserved for those with the misfortune of not being born into wealth. I've found from trying to find stuff out about the past that, generally speaking, if it largely affected the poor, chances are it's going to be very difficult to find any significant documentation of it. And that's kind of depressingly similar to now, isn't it? I mean, from the Napoleonic Wars to the Crimean, most of the time officers and generals would be pretty far away from the actual battle, save for major glories and, and, and moments like the Light Brigade that are obviously very well documented. 
wall was often such a space of safety for the elite that tourist groups would actually come to see the action, scouring the fields for souvenirs afterwards. Hey, I got a musket. Fun fact! Mark Twain actually took tour groups to see the cities ravaged by the Crimean War, uh, presumably on a magic mystery steamboat. As Jill Mattis writes in The Lancet, the 19th century was the realm of the wounded body, rather than that of the mind. Uh, this is less to do with actual knowledge, but rather the cultural climber. If someone were to start hypothetically accepting that, yes, forcing children and the horrific machines to collect old bits of cotton does probably have a detrimental effect on their brains. The closest that we actually ever get in this time to anything bordering on trauma from a stressful event is a condition known as railway shock or railway spy. This isn't having train tracks replace your backbones, duh, but is a term used to describe the resulting nervous breakdown one may experience after a locomotive crash. Back in the early days of train travel, rather than the worst part of a journey being the extreme delays and overpriced coffee, it was more likely that your carriage might buckle off the track because engineers didn't know about metal fatigue yet, or you may crash into another train because braking and signalling was more of an art than a science at this time. And admittedly, that art was a macaroni doodle on a used napkin. Charles Dickens experienced this firsthand on a journey where a carriage broke away. After pulling himself back into the train and away from certain death like a literary Bruce Willis, he then went back into the fray to pull an elderly couple out to safety. In the ensuing weeks, he described that he lost the ability to speak, felt frequent dizziness, and for years after would suffer flashbacks and shaking. I mean, maybe next time, just get an Uber, yeah, Charles? Hello. Of course, railway shock was something suffered by the middle class, those wealthy enough to afford railway tickets, and often the only reason it came up in discussion was by means of getting an insurance payout from the train companies. And be sure, when matters of money are involved, it's unsurprising that upon people writing about this proto-trauma, critics claimed it was simply made up by the victims in order to try and extort money. Of course, in our learned age now, we'd never be so low as to accuse a victim of horrendous abuse of making it up for money and attention. Who'd ever heard of that? So with that in mind, I, I actually think it's pretty amazing what Wells is writing about here. You know, I mean, whether knowingly or not, he's describing fairly accurately the traumatic response one would experience to such an unimaginable terror. Although maybe it's just that everyone was aware of it at the time, but they couldn't as a society face up to the immense suffering humans could undergo with no seeming cure available. Either way, I'm giving Herbert George some kudos for this, and I'm sure he'd be bloody delighted. A podcaster in the future is praising me. What's a podcast? What, what do you, he's just reading out. He's reading out my book. Should should I should I sue him? What what what's public domain? But the trouble was the blank incongruity of this serenity and the swift death flying yonder, not two miles away. There was a noise of business from the gasworks, and the electric lamps were all alight. I stopped at the group of people. What news from the common? Said I. There were two men and a woman at the gate. Okay, guys, uh, gear up for some world-renowned dialogue. You know, I think sci-fi often unfairly gets a bad rap for having sort of one-dimensional characters and, and not believable dialogue, you know. It tends, to, it tends to be accused of focusing only on ideas and on science, and it doesn't really take into account a lot of social aspects and a lot of, like, human interaction, which can make it seem a little bit flat, but I'm sure this will be different. Hey? Said one of the men, turning. What news from the common? I said. Ain't you just been there? Asked the men. 
people seem fair silly about the common, said the woman over the gate. What's it all about? Now, what she means to say there is about, uh, but H.G. Wells has spelt it about, which I quite like in my head. She's just saying, what's it all about? You know, like Bart Simpson. Imagine Bart Simpson was there. I caramba. Haven't you heard of the men from Mars? Said I. The creatures from Mars. Quite enough. Said the woman over the gate. Thanks. And all three of them laughed. (laughs) I felt foolish and angry. I tried and found I could not tell them what I had seen. They laughed again at my broken sentences. (laughs) Who'd have thought that when somebody comes and says there is a world-rocking crisis about to be on your doorstep, People think it's a joke and don't take it seriously. You know, I certainly can't think of something in recent memory where it's been like that, you know, where possibly you were you were told to take some very simple steps for not just your own safety, but for safety of society as whole, and you just decided that it wasn't real or something. You know, I couldn't see that happening. Definitely wouldn't blame it on something like telephone lines or something stupid like that. You'll hear more yet, I said, and went on to my home. I startled my wife at the doorway. So haggard was I. I went into the dining room, sat down, drank some wine, and so soon as I could collect myself sufficiently, I told her the things I had seen. The dinner, which was a cold one, had already been served. Don't worry, guys, he still found time to moan. And remained neglected on the table while I told my story. There is one thing, I said, to allay the fears I had aroused. They are the most sluggish things I ever saw crawl. They may keep the pit and kill people who come near them, but they cannot get out of it. But the horror of them... The role of wife will be played by Bexy Archer. Hello, Bexy. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Have you ever read um, or seen anything to do with War of the Worlds? Um, no, but I've just finished series two of Stranger Things. Okay, thanks for coming on. <laughs> thanks, have a great day. Bye. <laughs> what I wanted you to, to come on the show for was that I want you to play the role of the, the wife. Oh, thanks, man. I'm really... No problem. Can I just say what an honour it is? Because as you know, I'm classically trained. And I've just been really sure. waiting for, uh, you know, an opportunity really to uh, to showcase my my ability. So um, I've got a few notes before we go into it. Right, great, yeah. H.G. Wells, he's like one of the big original writers of sci-fi. He's well known for his really good dialogue. So you're called the wife. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Right, great. Yeah, I like the use of the 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 just to give me that extra title, like the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, 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 and I think we should take that into consideration going forward. Sometimes it's my, so it's my wife. I don't know if that's like a nick, nickname you have in it. You could also argue that that just is it, that just shows how close you know the two characters are. You know, there is possession there, there is control, and I think control is is really what what love is all about. So look, I'm sorry, but it's not it's not the the most detailed role. Uh, in the world well it's not yet it's it is but clay in your hands mm. ready ready to be molded as a sort of introduction uh your first line um you you knit your brows have you ever ever knitted brows before um i've knitted a coaster well i've crocheted a coaster. really it, well to be honest it did start off as a sock 
my skills go on and on it's on my spotlight if anyone's interested along with milking cows and i'm a vegan so yeah we could could milk a, an artificial cow nip if pushed oh, no. said my wife knitting her brows and putting her hand on mine poor ogilvy i said to think he may be lying dead there my wife at least did not find my experience incredible yeah it's not even impressive when I saw how deadly white her face was, I ceased abruptly. Uh, oh no, they're gonna come and eat your face! She said again and again. I pressed her to take wine and tried to reassure her. They can scarcely move, I said. I began to comfort her and myself by repeating all that Ogilvy had told me of the impossibility of the Martians establishing themselves on the Earth. In particular, I laid stress on the gravitational difficulty. On the surface of the Earth, the force of gravity is three times that that it is on the surface of Mars. A Martian, therefore, would weigh three times more than on Mars, albeit his muscular strength would be the same. His own body would be a cape of lead to him, therefore. That, indeed, was the general opinion. Both the Times and the Daily Telegraph, for instance, insisted on it the next morning, and both overlooked, just as I did, two obvious modifying influences. I mean, to be fair, it's been a while since we've just had a pure bit of science explanation. So slap on your lab coat and giddy up, Poindexter. The atmosphere of the Earth, we now know, contains far more oxygen, or far less argon, whatever way one likes to put it, than does Mars. The invigorating influence of this excess of oxygen upon the Martians indisputably did much to counterbalance the increased weight of their bodies. And, in the second place... We all overlooked the fact that such mechanical intelligence as the Martians possessed was quite able to dispense with muscular exertion at a pinch. Ooh, I can feel me. I can feel myself aging. My bones are so heavy. It's time to go. It's time to go. In the orb. Switch on the spark. We offer this to you, the orb. Turn back the clock. Bring back the lad from whence he was and where he will be and why he would be. I did not consider these points at the time, 
and so my reasoning was dead against the chances of the invaders. With wine and food, the confidence of my own table, and the necessity of reassuring my wife, I grew by insensible degrees courageous and secure. They have done a foolish thing, said I, fingering my wine glass. There you are. They are dangerous because, no doubt, they are mad with terror. Perhaps they expected to find no living things. Certainly no intelligent living things. And I guess the search is still on. Hey, oh! A shell in the pit, said I. If the worst comes to the worst, we'll kill them all. Ah, uh, there's probably no explanation needed for this Hiya, bit. Do you, need, do you need me to explain anything? No, it's okay explaining, lad. Don't, don't worry, I'll, I'll cover oh, it. Uh, okay, because it's kind of my, it's kind of my job. To do, to do that. I know, mate, but I, I'm just, I'm just going to take this one because I don't actually think it's a real explanation. Look, so just what I wanted to say was like, uh, I know, mate, but I, I'm just, I'm just going to take this one because I don't actually think it's a real explanation. Shell like a conch. <laughs> if I, like, could you imagine if they just chucked a conch in? Like, hey, up, take that, you Martian bastards! <laughs> and it's, it's a shell. Like, what is it? If we put it to our ears, we can hear the ocean. The intense excitement of the events had no doubt left my perceptive powers in a state of erethism. Erethism? I don't... I had to look up what this meant, erethism, and, uh, and I found a couple of definitions for it. So, the first one uh, is Mad Hatter's disease. So, in, in Victorian times, a lot of hatters would use uh, mercury for felting materials, and so that led to a disease called erethism. Um, which I don't think is what he's describing. I mean, so the symptoms for that are irritability, uh, low self-confidence, depression, apathy, and shyness. Hang on. Do I... Do I have mercury poisoning? Or, alternatively, it means excessive sensitivity or a rapid reaction to stimulation, especially in sexual organs. Pretty, pretty sure it's not that either. Uh, or a state of abnormal mental excitement. It seems that's probably the last one in it. State of abnormal mental excitement. I remember that dinner table with extraordinary vividness, even now. My dear wife's sweet, anxious face, peering at me from the pink lampshade. The white cloth with its silver and glass table furniture. For in those days, even philosophical writers had many little luxuries. The crimson purple wine in my glass are photographically distinct. At the end of it, I sat. Tempering nuts with a cigarette. Uh, maybe I was wrong about the sexual organs bit. Regretting Ogilvy's rashness and denouncing the short-sighted timidity of the Martians. Curse you, timid Martians! So some respectable dodo in the Mauritius might have lauded it in his nest and discussed the arrival of that ship full of pitiless sailors in want of animal food. We will peck him to death tomorrow, my dear. That's a great... That's a great idea, isn't it? That's like a John Finnemore sketch waiting to happen. I did not know it, but that was the last civilised dinner I was to eat for very many strange and terrible days. And there you go, what an ominous ending. Ooh, what could it mean? Probably much more Martian warfare to be expected, as you would anticipate in a book called The War of the Worlds. Thank you so much for listening, guys. I hope you've I hope you've enjoyed this chapter. The next chapter is Friday night. <laughs> hey, hey, you know, it's uh, been a busy week. Your best friends have all been murdered by Martians, and you just want to kick your shoes off, go to the club, and have a real nice Friday. I think we can all agree with that, and I'm sure that's what I'm expecting to hear. Like, subscribe, share rate 
and review the podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Eddie Hurst, that's E-D-Y-H-U-R-S-T. I'm on Instagram like that, I'm on Facebook like that. And if you really want to email me, because I don't know, it's it's an option, you can email me at eddiehurst at gmail.com. So I'm accessible is what I'm getting at here. A big thank you to Bexy Archer. Uh, she'll be on later on, so you'll hear more from her. Also, uh, follow her on Instagram. She's Bexy Archer, and she's on Twitter as well. She's also part of a comedy group with her partner, Kevin Dewsbury. Uh, they are your mum's dad, so be sure to follow them. They're not doing shows at the moment, obviously, given the situation we find ourselves in, but in the future, they shall be, and they shall be excellent. So, thanks again, guys, and we'll see you next time for Chapter 8, Friday Night. Eddie Hurst podcast version of The War of the Worlds is created by Eddie Hurst, written by Eddie Hurst and H.G. Wells. Special thanks this week to Bexy Archer. Our theme tune is by Ichabod Wolf, and it is The Fall of Saigon. Please like, share, subscribe, and rate the podcast. See you next week. Bye!